it seems silly to command deaf people to listen. Why does God do this? That he does it is clear in Scripture. For example, he addresses rebellious Israel in Isaiah 42, 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, so that you may see. Likewise, in Isaiah 48, 8, the Lord characterizes Israel's fundamental problem in similar terms. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Not only is Israel depicted as death from the womb, a metaphorical description of their inability to hear and their refusal to hear since their formation as a nation, yet God commands them to hear, but also Israel is depicted as blind, yet God commands them to look back in Isaiah 42:18 and he indicates that if these blind people would look which they cannot do because they're blind but if they would look it is in order that they may see should we infer that if they're looking at the right thing looking to the right person then that person would enable them to see should we further infer something like that with regard to their deafness as well. Under the judgment of God, in rebellion against Him, Israel is depicted here as blind and deaf. A few verses later, in Isaiah 42, 24, we learn more about their problem, as Isaiah the prophet reflects on why it is they are blind and deaf, and what God is doing about it. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not Yahweh? against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. Oh, but that last word is, as so often in the Old Testament, is actually the word for hearing. Why has God given Israel up to their enemies? Because they have refused to listen to His instruction. They have refused to obey His law. In other words, they have chosen deafness. Another expression used in the Old Testament is they have stopped up their ears. And what is God's response to this? Isaiah forty-two twenty-five. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Does God pouring out his wrath bringing in the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and sending them into exile fix their deafness problem? No, it does not. Nevertheless, he presents a word of hope immediately on the heels of this reference to judgment. Isaiah 43 begins, But now, thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Then in verses 5 to 7, he promises, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
Thus God promises to preserve a remnant in exile and bring them back to the land to accomplish a redemption that purchases His people, transforms His people, and indeed creates a new Israel. Not defined by ethnicity, but defined by God's call. Isaiah the prophet immediately elaborates on this summons from the Lord, recognizing that it is to be extended beyond ethnic Israel, even to the Gentiles. Look at verses 8 and 9. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. Isaiah calls for the blind and the deaf to come forth. But these blind are now said to have eyes. These deaf are now said to have ears. Can they see? Can they hear? He calls on the nations to bear witness. Indeed, the nations can hear and the nations can see. And they will confirm and celebrate God's great work of redemption. And they will join together with the blind and the deaf as God reconstitutes them all as His witnesses, as His collective servant. As He says in verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Thus Isaiah depicts Yahweh as having chosen a new people to serve Him, a new people to believe in Him, a new people to understand His identity and be in personal relationship with Him. Then as Isaiah depicts this event in Exodus language and imagery in the following paragraphs, he quotes more of Yahweh's wondrous words of redemption. And climactically in verse 25, he says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And then on top of this, opening chapter 44, the Lord says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. There's that call to hear yet again. But now he's addressing the people who will experience this renewal. The promise then comes in verse 3. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And who are these offspring of Jacob? Who are these descendants of Israel? Verses 4 and 5 says, They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, Yahweh's, and name himself by the name of Israel. The Lord announces the future day when he will create a new Israel by pouring out his spirit and extending his covenant blessing on those who hear and heed his gospel call. These will become his witnesses, those who will testify of his greatness and his gospel throughout all nations. It is these who have their deafness removed. It is these who are granted sight. And how will it be? How can it be? Paul explains in Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing produces faith in the heart. 
In the previous paragraph, Paul had famously written in Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So then Paul raises and answers the important question. How does it happen that sinners will believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? And how does it happen that sinners who believe this then confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? What is the origin of this believing, this faith? It is hearing. But he cannot leave it there. He recognizes that even this sense of hearing has a deeper origin, a deeper cause. And it does not originate simply in the person's will, the person's choice to listen. He recognizes the universal deafness of humanity. Thus, he points to the word of Christ, the gospel message about the Messiah and his spirit-anointed work to accomplish salvation. This word itself overcomes deafness. It is a divine, creative word that creates hearing and then, that then results in heart faith that receives God's verdict of righteousness the forgiveness of sins, and the new covenant eternal life promised to all believers. Hearing, indeed, is all-important. No wonder Jesus himself instructed those who heard him speak in Luke eight eighteen, take care then how you hear. And he addressed those who heard him speak in parables repeatedly, he who has ears, let him hear. Doesn't everyone have ears? Yes, literal, physical ears. But Jesus is rather referring to the spiritual sense of hearing that Paul was referring to. So the crucial question becomes, how do we get ears to hear? The call to hear, to listen, to heed, to obey is repeated throughout Scripture hundreds of times in various forms. Why? Because God is always speaking. If God is always speaking, then we are always being called to listen, called to respond. As we enter Proverbs 8 this morning, we are confronted with God's voice in the form of what one writer has called Lady Wisdom's autobiography. We could also call it her resume. This author also believes that Proverbs 8 is the most difficult and profound chapter in the book. The whole chapter is indeed a singular unit, but we've got to take it over the course of two weeks. We consider only verses 1 to 21 this morning, but the final paragraph of the chapter is a conclusion to the whole, and we'll have good reason to dip into that final paragraph this morning in connection with the first part of the chapter. More particularly, Solomon reintroduces his son and us readers to Lady Wisdom in this chapter. The first half of the chapter breaks down easily into four sections. In the first section, verses 1 to 5, Solomon draws attention to Lady Wisdom's call. And the next three sections essentially give reasons to motivate his son and us readers to listen and heed her call. Consider verses 1 to 5. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, 
learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Let me draw your attention to several important aspects of these opening verses. First, notice the familiar personification. Wisdom is depicted as a woman calling out to people in public. Thus, you could capitalize the W in verse 1. Likewise, the word understanding in the second line of verse 1 is essentially being treated as her nickname. But this is not merely the personification of an abstraction. Rather, this is God's wisdom, God's understanding that is being personified, the wisdom and understanding that He shares with His people. Secondly, notice her omnipresence. As an attribute of God, God's wisdom shares in all other attributes as well. Thus, she seems to be everywhere in verses 2 and 3. Everywhere people are moving about and conducting business. Third, her call is constant. This is not typically clear in English translations, but the verbs describing Lady Wisdom's call can be translated effectively as duratives. She has kept on calling. She has kept on raising her voice. She's not waiting around to be found by those who are looking for her, though looking for her is very important, as we'll see later. She's also not whispering or secretly sharing her instruction in a dark corner. She's out in public, offering instruction to anyone who will listen to her. Fourth, as she seems to be everywhere, calling out all the time, notice that her summons goes out to everyone. In verse 4, the phrase children of man can be more literally translated sons of Adam, or, not to exclude women, descendants of Adam. She addresses more particularly simple ones, the young, inexperienced, who haven't yet chosen the way of wisdom or the way of foolishness for their lives. And she also addresses those who have chosen foolishness. They can still repent and find the way of wisdom. Also notice how different her approach is than the other woman we considered last week in chapter 7. As one writer sketches the contrast, Lady Wisdom cries out but does not kiss the young men impudently. She desires to persuade with the truthful content of her speech. In verse 5, her specific charge is that simple ones would learn prudence. The call is for discernment. Commentator John Kitchen describes these simple ones as naive, who are vulnerable to any and every wind of influence that may blow their way. They are open to every sales pitch. They are gullible, silly, and easily convinced. They are thus unstable. However, if Lady Wisdom should get to them before Dame Folly does, then even these gullible ones can gain what they need to stay off the wrong path. To the fools, Lady Wisdom commands, learn sense, as the ESV has it. More literally, it is a command to discern heart. A couple of weeks ago, we observed how Proverbs refers to fools of various kinds as lacking sense, or more literally, lacking a heart. Thus, they need to discern in order to get a heart. This is a call to listen to Lady Wisdom's instruction and discern the truth and goodness in it. And the result will be receiving a new heart, a heart of wisdom. I think it is right to see here a reflection of the universal call of the gospel going out to all people. As we proclaim the gospel, God uses that proclamation to grant new hearts 
to dead sinners. Or, to play with the imagery we started with, God uses our communication of the gospel to overcome the deafness of sinners. Jesus, as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, made the physically deaf hear during His earthly ministry. How much more does He also make the spiritually deaf hear as the Spirit of God uses the gospel of God, the Word of Christ, to grant hearing and so produce the heart faith that results in justification from God. Then those who have been granted a new heart and a new sense of hearing carry on their lives by hearing with faith, to borrow a phrase from Paul, so that the fruit of the Spirit continues to grow and develop in and among us. To hear and and heed Lady Wisdom's call is to hear and heed Christ which we do through hearing and heeding the words of Spirit-inspired Scripture. In Proverbs 8, the first thing Lady Wisdom points to in her autobiography in order to motivate her hearers to heed her word and respond to her call is her righteous words. She describes her words in several ways in verses 6 through 11. And verse 6 begins with the direct command to hear. Hear. For I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels." And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Verse 6 begins with the command here. And verse 10 begins with the command take, or better, receive. In between those two commands are several descriptions of Lady Wisdom's righteous words. Each of these descriptors applies more broadly to God's word as well. Let's consider them one at a time. First in verse 6, Lady Wisdom claims to speak what the ESV calls noble things. The 1984 NIV says worthy things. The 2011 NIV says trustworthy things. The NLT says important things. The King James Version has excellent things. The Amplified Bible has excellent and princely things. I do not generally recommend the Amplified Bible, but in this case, it has accurately drawn out something that none of the other versions do. The Hebrew word kind of puzzles translators in this context. It's the ordinary word usually translated as princes or rulers, but it seems to be functioning in this verse as a descriptive term describing the kinds of words Lady Wisdom speaks. Solomon perhaps chooses this word to point forward to what he's going to say in verses 12 to 16, where Lady Wisdom depicts the impact she has on kings, princes, rulers, and other leaders. In other words, Lady Wisdom's words are fitting to instruct and shape the decisions of even the most powerful human leaders. Second, in verse 6, she describes what comes from her lips, her words, as what is right, a term referring to equity or fairness. Unlike the evil woman and the adulteress, whose words have been described as slippery, smooth, oily, Lady Wisdom speaks straight and clear words. Then in verse 7, she indicates that she speaks 
truth. Literally, she refers to her palate. And the verb describing her speech is used to depict growling or making deeply guttural noises. I think the point is to emphasize that truth comes from deep within her and may serve to accent that she conveys the truth not in simply analytical, flat monotone. Rather, she emotes truth. When she proclaims truth, she gets into it. She roars, growls, chirps, moans, yells, and practically sings it out. Fourth, in the second line of verse 7, wickedness is an abomination to my lips. In other words, wicked words could never cross her lips. Such wickedness makes her want to vomit. As we learned about seven abominations to the Lord back in chapter 6, so Lady Wisdom highlights a particular abomination to her, something that disgusts and revolts her, wickedness. Thus, listening to Lady Wisdom can only lead toward righteousness. As we look at the last three here, notice the emphasis laid by the words all and nothing. Verse 8 begins, all the words of my mouth are righteous. This is similar to David's reflections on God's word in Psalm 19.9. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. David sings particularly here of God's verdicts. When he declares someone guilty, his verdict is completely righteous. And more wondrously to us, when he declares someone righteous, his verdict is is completely righteous. Lady Wisdom instructs those who have been counted righteous by faith in how to live righteously. Her words teach us what righteousness looks like on the ground in a life lived in pursuit of the glory of our totally righteous God. In the second half of verse 8, Lady Wisdom further describes her words. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. Wicked men have been earlier characterized by their twisted, crooked, depraved words. Wicked people use their words to distort reality, to deceive and manipulate people. Lady Wisdom would never speak in such a way. One commentator summarizes, Much has been said about the perverse words of evil men and the honeyed words of loose women, which are fired at young men from all sides like poisoned arrows. Deception, duplicity, and perverseness mark the words of evil men and wayward women. Straightforwardness, forthrightness, and integrity mark the words of Lady Wisdom. She will not even stoop to bending the truth a little to make her point, far less to curry favor, a temptation all preachers face from time to time. She speaks in plain language, which can be understood where there is a willingness to understand, and which can always be implicitly trusted. Reference to a willingness to understand takes us into verse 9. Verse 9 could be counted as including two separate descriptors of Lady Wisdom's words, but the Hebrew structure of the sentence suggests they should be held together as one. She says, They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Three three features are crucial to understand here. First, notice the repeated reference to all her words. She never deviates from this manner of speech. Her desire to persuade her hearers never leads her to manipulate by withholding part of the truth. Second, note the two descriptors, straight and right. Both are physical descriptions. 
Straight refers literally to what is out in front of us. We might say that her words are up front or straightforward. She says what she means. Right refers literally to what is straight up and down, physically upright, a common description for righteous character in the Old Testament. We might speak of someone who shoots straight. Again, Lady Wisdom tells it like it is. This certainly reflects her hard-edged words back in chapter 1. There, her summons was full of stern rebuke, sarcastic mockery, and calls for repentance. She is no softy when it comes to confrontation. Here in chapter 8, however, her call takes on a tender tone. Thus, she is the proper blend of toughness and tenderness. No wonder her name is Wisdom. The third thing to notice from verse 9 is that she makes mention of those who subjectively perceive her words as they really are. All her words really are straight and right, but the only ones who perceive the straightness and uprightness of her words are those who understand and those who find knowledge. The second descriptor, the one who finds knowledge, takes us back to chapter 2. The one who finds the knowledge of God is the one who receives wise words from parents, treasures the commands of parents, listens to the words of wisdom, calls out for understanding and searches for it like buried treasure. The one who finds the knowledge of God is the one who fears the Lord. The one who finds knowledge is the one who receives the wisdom the Lord offers as a gift. Thus, Lady Wisdom depicts a kind of prerequisite for those who would respond appropriately to her call. She's describing the wondrous righteousness of her words to simple people and fools and ultimately to all people. Who does she expect to respond to her words? Perhaps she says this in order to expose her listeners' hearts. As Jesus said, be careful how you hear How you hear God's word reveals what kind of heart you have. If you find yourself scoffing at God's word, rejecting God's word, bored by God's word, utterly confused by God's word, and you might be seeing evidence of your own hardened heart. But if you find yourself drawn by God's word, if you find yourself approving of God's word, loving God's word, believing God's word, and wanting desperately to live in light of it, you might be seeing evidence of a renewed heart, a heart changed by the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, Lady Wisdom issues her other command. The ESV has, take my instruction here, but the King James Version has it better this time, receive my instruction. Like in chapter 2, we are reminded that wisdom is a gift given by God, not an achievement earned by people. Lady Wisdom motivates us by indicating that her instruction, her discipline, even the painful corrective form that it often takes, is to be preferred over material riches. In verse 11, it seems that Solomon inserts a comment into Lady Wisdom's autobiographical comments. Notice the third person reference to wisdom. She might be referring to herself this way, but Solomon could have interjected this to press his point. He seems to want to assure his son and his readers that he concurs with Lady Wisdom's self-assessment of her words. We recall that Solomon himself, at one time in his life at least, recognized the value of Lady Wisdom. 
when offered an opportunity to ask the Lord for anything he wanted, he asked for wisdom to rule rather than material wealth. God was pleased by this request, and he chose to give him both wisdom to rule and material wealth. In verses 12 to 16, then, we return to Lady Wisdom's autobiographical sketch, and here she turns to the very thing Solomon wanted. We see how wisdom impacts and shapes rulers. Lady Wisdom's provision for leaders is on display in these verses. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of Yahweh is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. In verse 12, we're introduced to Lady Wisdom's companions, her best friends, as it were. This trio of attributes appeared back in chapter 1, verse 4, as these are among the expected outcomes for those who study the book of Proverbs. Prudence refers to a kind of cleverness or craftiness or shrewdness. In some ways, it's the opposite of gullibility. It comes with the kind of steadfast maturity that refuses to be knocked about by every wind of doctrine. Knowledge, of course, has to do with the perception and acceptance of truth. And it's possible that the last two are intended to be combined into one, knowledge of discretion. We think of discretion as the quality of keeping private information private. But its first definition indicates what we might call sound judgment or good sense. The Hebrew term is perhaps a little more colorful. It often describes plans Negatively, it's used for wicked people's schemes or plots to harm others. Fundamentally, it seems to reflect the ability to develop sensible plans of action. After she draws attention to her attractive companions in verse 13, she refers to what Solomon has described as the fundamental principle, the beginning of knowledge. And he'll highlight the same fundamental principle as the beginning of wisdom in chapter 9, verse 10 the fear of Yahweh. Here, Lady Wisdom spells out what this means in terms of hating evil. Simply put, if we are thrilled with the Lord, we will reject all forms of evil. We will hate sin in ourselves. We will seek to repent of it, and we will fight hard against giving in to temptation. If we find ourselves not hating evil, not fighting sin, Perhaps we should ask ourselves how thrilled we are with the Lord at the moment. As we remember all the wondrous good He's done for us, particularly in the giving of His Son to die to pay for our sins, we can find the proper motivation to kill sin in our lives. In verse 14, Lady Wisdom claims to possess counsel or advice, as well as what the ESV calls sound wisdom. The Hebrew term might well be put into English as street smarts, It's a term that describes reacting sensibly and effectively to sudden change in circumstance. It is to do what is wise and good when things don't go according to our plans. In the second line, we probably have another nickname of Lady Wisdom. The word translated insight most commonly refers to discernment. And we've seen repeatedly how the skill of discernment 
the ability to tell the difference between good and evil, true and false, right and wrong, is associated with God's wisdom. Lady Wisdom thus says, I, discernment, have strength, power, or might. The power associated with wise leadership comes from God's wisdom expressed in God's word. Thus, she continues in verses 15 and 16 to indicate that she empowers leaders and rulers to do their work well and wisely. Here, I shall refrain from complaining about the foolishness of our civil government leaders. I hear too much of that from Christians, and I should very much like to issue a strong rebuke. I do not see the good in it, at least in the typical form that I hear it and see it. Instead, I'd like to look inward. What leadership roles are you occupying? How are you seeking to influence people in your life? Certainly, one reason our government officials fail is because they do not make decisions shaped by God's Word. But examine your own decisions. We'll see in the next paragraph that everything Lady Wisdom offers to rulers and leaders She offers to everyone as well. What Lady Wisdom offers can enable you to step into leadership roles and roles of influence. Listen to her. Heed her voice. Receive what she offers. And anytime powerful leaders, government officials, judges, or lawmakers actually establish or enforce genuine, biblically defined righteousness somewhere on this planet... It is because Lady Wisdom has impacted them for righteousness, whether they know it or not. Interestingly, six of the features in verses 12 to 14 are listed as attributes endowed to the Messiah by the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11. Consider as Isaiah 11, 1 to 4. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. The Holy Spirit connects Lady Wisdom with the Messiah so that he embodies God's wisdom perfectly in flesh and blood. And he expresses that wisdom by all aspects of his reign. He sits today upon his throne at the right hand of God, and do you think He sits idly? Do you think He's not actually reigning over this world? Indeed, He is sovereign King over all. Aren't you glad that He is also the defender of His people? Aren't you glad that He never ceases to intercede for you, dear believer? And you can be sure this same Spirit-empowered Messiah will return on His white war horse and He will slay the wicked by the sword of His mouth. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ and He does all things well because 
He is the eternal embodiment of Lady Wisdom. But more about that next Sunday. Returning to Proverbs 8, verses 17 to 21, turns to consider the gifts Lady Wisdom offers to all who love her. Look at verses 17 to 21. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Reference to those who love me brackets these verses, verse 17 and verse 21. Lady Wisdom here sounds like God, who, according to Exodus 20, verse 6, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus speaks similarly in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Lady Wisdom offers her love only to those who will love her in return. This is a picture of marriage. Solomon wants his son and us readers to figuratively but truly marry Lady Wisdom. To become so intimately united with her that she shapes our identities, our day-to-day lives, and our destinies. We must acknowledge another tension in the second line of verse 17. When Lady Wisdom first spoke to us in chapter 1, she spoke of some who will seek me diligently but will not find me. In that earlier section, she was depicted as offering words of rebuke and correction for those who have long refused her call. Thus, she warns that people can wait too long, rejecting the call of Lady Wisdom, and indeed, rejecting the message of the gospel when it is heard is dangerous and foolish. The call of the prophet in Isaiah 55, 6 sounds the same note of urgency. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. But in verse 17, Lady Wisdom assures her hearers that those who seek her will find her. She's not hiding herself away. Then in verses 18 and 19, she offers monetary gain and organic produce. Seek wisdom and you get rich. Seek to get rich and you will be corrupted, consumed, and condemned. The wealth Lady Wisdom offers, however, is connected to righteousness. And it is said to endure. Lasting wealth comes with lasting righteousness. Eternal righteousness comes with eternal riches. In 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul tells us to set our hope on God, not on riches. And when we set our hope on God, He richly provides us with everything to enjoy, both now, in this life, and forevermore. Lady Wisdom reminds us in verse 20 that her pathway is characterized by righteousness and justice. Thus, it makes sense that the fruit she produces in the lives of those who listen to her, love her, and walk with her is characterized by righteousness and justice. 
Thus she grants a full treasury as an inheritance for those who love her in verse 21. This is a gift of grace. As God has purchased us in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ, according to the riches of His grace, so He has also provided for us the riches of His glorious inheritance, according to Ephesians chapter 1. And with the connection we saw earlier to the Holy Spirit and His production of this multifaceted wisdom in the life of the Messiah... We can view Lady Wisdom's promise of fruit better than gold as foreshadowing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that the Spirit produces in the lives of believers according to Galatians 5. Thus the gifts Lady Wisdom offers to all who love her points ahead to all that God does in working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. In other words, heeding the righteous words of Lady Wisdom will transform us into people who are conformed more into the image of our righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. And this transformation will take place as the Holy Spirit works in us through our continued engagement with God's Word. Thus, finally, we skip over verses 22 to 31 for today, and we conclude this morning with Lady Wisdom's congratulations for those who respond to her words. In verses 32 to 36, after she spends the entire chapter describing her universal call and motivating people to heed her call She reiterates the call and pronounces blessings upon those who respond. Look at verses 32 to 36. We'll revisit these verses also next week. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The sons she addresses goes back to the sons of Adam in verse 4. And she refers to those who hang out watching and waiting at the gates where she was depicted as calling out in verses 2 and 3. She pronounces two beatitudes, two blessed statements. As we've seen before, this phraseology in the Old Testament and the New Testament is best reflected in the idea of congratulations in English. The word expresses a positive personal assessment of someone's circumstances. Thus, her final appeal for people to listen to her and obey her is that it's good for people. She's already spelled out multiple ways how it's good for them. In the final two verses, we get her final reasons to motivate us to respond appropriately to her words. To find Lady Wisdom is to find life. And I suggest we should read this as a promise of eternal life. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is there referring to Himself as the only gateway, the only entryway to the path that leads to eternal life. Likewise, in John 14, 6, he famously 
identified himself as the only way, the only pathway that leads to life. Indeed, in that verse, he also identified himself as the truth, embodied, and as eternal life itself. To know God and to know Jesus as the Messiah sent into the world to save sinners is Jesus' definition of eternal life. Lady Wisdom adds to this that the finding of wisdom, which is coordinated with the finding of life, also results in gaining favor from Yahweh. The word translated favor refers to what is pleasant or pleasing. This implies that following the way of wisdom, seeking to obey God's word, is, is, in, is intended to be not only good for us, but also delightful to us. It should give us pleasure to obey the Lord. Part of this pleasure may come in the soothing of a guilty conscience. When we have confidence that we are seeking to obey His Word, even when we know that our obedience is incomplete and imperfect, we should be pleased. Moreover, there is a flip side to this. In Proverbs 12.22 we read, Lying lips are an abomination to Yahweh, but those who act faithfully are His delight. We can have confidence that our pursuit of acting faithfully pleases the Lord, and we ought to be pleased too. When we experience begrudging obedience, there is something amiss in our faith. In fact, as John Piper says, the mark of love for God is willing, joyful obedience, not begrudging obedience. He's reflecting on John's comment in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Our pursuit of obedience to His commandments can be a pleasurable pursuit of pleasing Him when we view His commands as not a burden. Likewise, pastor and professor Brian Chappell comments, the person who does what God says with a resentful heart and begrudging obedience does not bear the mark of the true child of light. The heart renewed by the Spirit desires to please God, is anxious to find out what He desires, and is motivated by the sense of bringing God pleasure. How can we find out what He desires? The Scriptures must be our guide. Thus we return to the absolute necessity of listening. Note here in this final paragraph of Proverbs 8 that the word hear or listen occurs again three times. But Lady Wisdom closes with another warning. Consider the New King James Version's rendering of verse 36. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Earlier, we've dwelt on the call to love Lady Wisdom. Here, she closes acknowledging that there are many who hate her. These folks don't merely fail to find her. They are charged with sin against her. Again, recognizing that this is a personification of God's wisdom, we're talking about sinning against God Himself. The word translated wrongs or injures or harms is the Hebrew word for violence. Sinning against God is an act of self-mutilation. It is truly an act of violence against one's own soul, against one's own life. What does this mean in real life? those who refuse to listen to God's Word, those who dismiss or ignore the Bible, those who despise the Gospel, are choosing eternal death. The world hates Jesus. 
and therefore hates Lady Wisdom. The world hates God. Jesus said so in John's Gospel. Listening to God's Word is a mark of a true follower of Jesus, someone who has eternal life, someone who knows God, is from God, is of God. In 1 John 4, 6, John speaks of himself and others authorized to speak God's Word as his ambassadors. He writes, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Jesus said the same in John 8, 47, addressing the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus so much that they were seeking to kill him. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Their deafness has not been overcome. If God doesn't overcome their deafness then they will remain under His judgment. Jesus continues to proclaim the truth to them, and we continue to proclaim the gospel to all people, because that is how God overcomes spiritual deafness. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to heal deafness, grant the sense of hearing, produce heart faith that confesses Jesus is Lord and believes that God raised Him from the dead. God's Word always accomplishes His purposes. Always. We do not always know what God's specific purpose is for a particular individual or a particular encounter. Our responsibility is to preach the Word, to share the truth about Jesus with everyone we can. He will use His Word to accomplish His purposes both for salvation and for judgment. Judgment will come to those who reject and disobey His Word. Salvation will come for those who believe and obey His Word. Thus, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He then adds in chapter 4, verse 2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Thus Paul and his companions follow Lady Wisdom's methods in their proclamation of the gospel. He then elaborates on the experience of those who hear his preaching but reject it, ignore it, or dismiss it those who experience his preaching as a fragrance from death to death. In verse 3, he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So it was in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
And back in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he refers to the gospel as a treasure stored in people like Paul. Fragile clay pots. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The surpassing power to save sinners comes from the Spirit of God as He uses the Word of God. As Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. We close thus as we opened with the Lord's words through the prophet Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that the power does not lie in us. We acknowledge our own weakness, our own failure, our own timidity, our own fear when it comes to speaking of the great gospel that you've stored within us and given to us. We pray for boldness because we don't have it. We pray for your spirit to be at work because we can't. We pray for your power to give life because we can't. You call us to speak the word. You call us to speak well of Jesus. Motivate us, Lord, to do it. Help us to be clearer. Help us to be bolder. Help us to be confident, not in ourselves, but in you and your power. We pray right now with our minds perhaps filled with people in our life that don't know you, who are lost, who are walking on the path of folly, that leads ultimately to eternal destruction. And we pray that you would give us confidence to speak of Jesus. But Lord, don't let us depend on our own cleverness, our own skill, our own ability, but help us to rest fully in confidence in you and know very well that we can share Jesus poorly, stumblingly, stutteringly, And you can still bring salvation. You did it to us. Who of us was brought to salvation because someone so perfectly said it? Because they said all the right things and did all the right things. Who of us would credit them with our salvation? No, Lord, it is you. To you alone that we give glory for our salvation. And so we pray that as you give us ears to hear, give us mouths to speak. And we thank you that it's the same spirit who empowers both of those things. So we pray that you do it. Change us. Grow us. Conform us more to the image of your Son, to our great Savior, who, who did indeed speak it so perfectly, who never failed in speaking your word, who never stumbled, who never said it quite wrong, who never said it in the wrong tone. We thank you for his work of salvation that provides forgiveness for our failures in this area and all others. So we rest in him today, and we pray that you would do a great work in us and among us. Use us as your witnesses, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Remain seated. We've got a few announcements.